Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 1, the start of it all. Luke chapter 1, we started last time looking at Dr. Luke and who he is, and we came off of a um, seven-year study of the Old Testament, and now coming into the New Testament, and, and not to make a break between the two, because there really isn't one. Um, there's not actually an Old or a New Testament in the sense that God doesn't name them that way. They're not named that way in the Scriptures. We name them that way to find our way around, but it's, anymore it's become the operative terms of what we follow and what we don't follow, and I'm not sure where you got that from. Yeah, there is an Old and a New Testament in that sense, but they're really just one Scripture, and they're collective whole, and they're both legitimate. And Every time a writer or a speaker namely Jesus in the New Testament, quotes from the Bible. He never quotes from the New Testament. You know that, right? Because there wasn't a New Testament, so how could he quote from it, right, since he's living the New Testament? Every time he authoritates his ministry and anything that he does, he gets that authority from the Old Testament. Don't think the Old Testament is not authoritative. It most definitely is. Every time they refer to the Scriptures in the New Testament, they're always talking about the Old Testament. They're not referencing the New. They're writing the New. Not take away from the new in any way. Uh, but, but you have to understand the importance of the collective whole of the, of the entire Bible and just sometimes separate them. Nothing wrong with saying Old or New Testament as long as there's not a separation in your mind as to, as to what is valid and what isn't valid. Don't mistake it. Every word of God is going to be fulfilled. Old or New Testament, there's not a break in, in the mind of God. Neither should there be for, you, for us. So we're ready for this portion of the entire scriptures that we call the New Testament, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and we're going to be in verses 5 through 6 in just a minute. The New Testament is the record of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's simply all that it is, both in his physical body, the three years he ministered, and in his spiritual body, namely the church, which, through which he continues to minister. And it's a record of all that. It's a record of that ministry that he did in his physical body. He continued to do through the church and Acts, and Acts continues on until today if we are a New Testament church, which hopefully we are. Uh, that's what it is all about. It's about Jesus who is called the Christ. And I separate that out because it says it that way in the New Testament also because Christ isn't as, if you remember, you know this because I harp on this because it's just one of my pet peeves. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Bill Waddell, Jesus Christ, let me introduce ourselves, you know. It's not his last name. It is a title. It is the same title. If I said Messiah, does that sound like a name to you? No, that sounds like a title. Well, that Christ is just a Greek translation of the word Messiah. It was a name they gave, or a title they gave to all the Jewish kings. means the anointed one. Jesus is the fulfillment and culmination of that position. Uh, every Messiah before him, every Jewish king before him, would reign as king, and then they would die, and they would pass on that kingship to a son or a grandson or a nephew, depending on which, whatever the case may be. But they would pass it on, and the reason why they couldn't continue to be as king is because they, they ceased to live. All right, Jesus ceased to live, didn't he? How long? Just three of those. Came, come back. So Jesus is the end of the, of the line of David. He's the end of the Messiahship because he lives forever to hold the position as king. So the book of the New Testament, if you will, as we call it, is a book, is, is a description of the story of that king, King Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of the Gentiles, the king of the earth, the king of the universe, and it plays out in that order in this Bible. 
We're going to be listening to hear what he's got to say and what Luke has to say about him. Dr. Luke takes us back to where it all starts, and it starts with a start. And God has been silent for 400 years. The prophet hasn't risen since Malachi. And the final words that he spoke through Malachi 400 years before, 400 years is a long time. You think about it, our country's about half that, a little less than half, or a little more than half of that in age. Wow. So they just had 400 year half time. The Jews just had a 400-year halftime in their progression. Uh, so, wow, talk about an ancient culture. So, see, I will send the promise. One of the last things he says to Malachi. God making a promise. He's making an oath here, is he not? I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And so, watch how Luke begins his story of John the Baptist, down in verse 17 of the first chapter of Luke. Speaking of John the Baptist, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, the king, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he's not the total fulfillment of Malachi. I expect in every way Elijah to come, the real legitimate Elijah who sent it into heaven, you know, through a uh, whirlwind. But in a, there's a partial fulfillment in the person of John the Baptist, and Luke points it out very clearly and accurately here. In the spirit and power of Elijah, he wasn't actually Elijah, but in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so that's, that's John's uh, responsibility, and he's a partial fulfillment of the oath that God made 400 years. How long does it take God to come around to doing what he said? As long as it's supposed to. Why isn't God working such and such in my life? Because it ain't time yet, okay? And when it's time, that's when it'll happen. Let him be God, and you be his servant, and you trust him. He's the shepherd. You're the sheep, right? You don't tell the shepherd what to do. So try, try your best not to do that. Life will be way better for you. So, so John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the oath that God took through the last prophet he spoke through, which was Malachi. The next prophet he speaks through is John the Baptist. 400 years later, the next mouthpiece of God is John the Baptist. And so we have John's story here that begins in a very small way, uh, a pregnancy, a miraculous one, to a couple who are unable to have children, and they're in their 60s, and lo and behold, they come up pregnant. Wow, what a miracle, right? Indeed it was. And so I want to say, by the way, before we get very far, a load of thanks to uh, Pastor John MacArthur, I use a lot of his studies. I'm going to be using a lot of his studies for, for the study in Luke. And I know that you listen, I'm sure, I hope you do listen to a lot of pastors and preachers out there. And, and I want you to be addicted to the good ones, and I want you to stay away from the bad ones. And so um, make yourself a list, and I will ch I'll cross off the ones that I don't like. <laughs> John MacArthur, I like. I don't 100% agree with John. And neither does he with me, and I think that's the way it ought to be. Uh, John's a bit dry. John is very, very low on the illustration uh, line of things. He's very didactic, very teacher, but one thing I will say, he's committed to the truth of the scriptures and committed to the teaching of the scriptures and leaving no rock unturned, and I appreciate that. And I don't have to agree with him. By the way, I don't think he agrees with me either, 100%. And I think that's the way it ought to be. But I just, I just want to give him credit because I'm going to be using a lot of his stuff and illustrations. You may say, well, that sounds like John MacArthur. Well, there's a reason for it. I was studying his stuff because he's pretty good. So God frequently begins, back to what we were saying, things in a very small and unnoticed way. And if we're waiting, for instance, for trumpets and to blow and a ta -da, da da and a red carpet and flashy stuff for God to work that way, probably going to be waiting a long time. It's not that he's not capable of doing that. He just doesn't have a need to do that. 
So usually when God does something, it start, not that it stays small, but it starts small. It starts unannounced. It starts un, unflamboyantly. And I don't know about you, but I'm bothered, I'm, I, I have a personality that's bothered by flamboyantness. And maybe that's the kind of person you are, and I'm not trying to offend you in any way. But if you come at me all flashy, and I'm going to, you know, like a used car salesman. We have a used car salesman. We have a daughter that's one of those, and, you know, all respect to her. But uh, not her, but you've been around these guys. I'm going to sell you a car today. And I'm thinking, no, you're not. <laughs> you're definitely not. I don't care if I got a million dollars. I'm not buying it from you just because you said that. I don't, all this flashy stuff and this boisterousness, and, and, and again, it's not my personality for one. But on the other hand, I've seen it many, off, many times. A person that's got to be flashy and boisterous is because they've got something to hide. You know? I'm distracting you with this hand because I'm doing something I don't want you to see, you know, with, with this hand. You know, it's like a magic trick. It's a sleight of hand. And so I don't like boisterousness. I just don't. It's just a, just a way that I am. And I'm not saying all the people that are are necessarily trying to hide anything. But I will say this. You won't find God being that way. You just won't. Because he's got nothing to hide. He's just got nothing to hide. And he's not going to do it the way you think he's going to do it. He's going to do it in the simple, quiet way that he normally does just because... He's got nothing to prove except to himself, and that is to do the right thing for us and to, to meet our needs. And that's what you see God moving in a very small way here, this pregnancy with John and ultimately of Mary uh, being a virgin who becomes pregnant. And so this story starts off very small, but of course doesn't stay small. So the story begins with a simple man, Zechariah, and a simple woman named Elizabeth. Take a look at chapter verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias. Um, his, his name means God remembers. And of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Her name means God's oath. You put their names together, what do you got? God remembers his oath. Now, if they had put their names together, which I don't think they did, they might have figured out, hey, maybe God's going to do something through us. Well, they'd given up on that hope a long time ago. You're 65 years old and haven't had a son. Haven't had any children. You're praying someone else, you know, will be blessed by God, but you're not praying for yourself anymore. But they're about to have their prayers, even though long ago ceased, they're about to have their prayers answered. So Zechariah is one of about 18,000 priests during this time. He says he's a priest that serves under the division of Abijah. They had 24 divisions of 18,000 priests, which if you do the math, gives you 750 per division. And these guys were like army reservists. They, they were on call two weeks out of the year. They had to go on duty. And they may be called up for other occasions, special situations, but mainly they only served two weeks out of the year, and it was a rotating time. Sometimes it was the winter, sometimes in the summer and the spring. You drew it by lot, and then when it became your group, then you had to go and serve for two weeks. These guys were, and was, a priest is a high and holy name, and they had a high and holy position, but I want you to understand, practically speaking, they were effectively butchers. That's what they did. Because the system of worship was a system of sacrifice. I'm a sinner. Neither one, I pay for my own sins, or a sacrifice takes my place. It was a sacrificial system dealing with sin. God is very serious about sin, and he kept this message in front of the people of how serious he was about sin, in that when they sinned, something else had to pay for it, you see, or they pay for their own sins. That's an option. It sure is. But if you don't want to pay for your own sins, there had to be an innocent substitute. So, so without, without a show of hands, without a number shouted out, how many times do you sin a day? 
Animals cost money. You could send yourself poor really quick. So in order to be in a right relationship with God, I've got to take this sacrifice, you see. And so there's thousands and thousands of Israelis, all of them just as good a sinners as we are. So these 750 guys that serve for two weeks, what are they doing all day? They are skinning, quartering, and gutting animals. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Oh, that's horrible. Sin is horrible. Ma'am, sir, it's atrocious. God hates it. And God's going to throw all sinners not reconciled to him into hell, and you need to know it. He's very serious about it. In case you didn't notice, he hung his own son on a cross to pay for your sins. Why would he do something like that? Because otherwise it was you. That is an option. You can pay for your own sins in an eternity in a place called hell. Or you can have Jesus pay for your sins. It's either you or an innocent substitute. So, yeah, I agree. It's atrocious. Sin is atrocious. They, they would come home covered in animal blood every single day. Zechariah was a small little man in the scheme of things. He was one of 18,024 divisions, 750 men within his division. He's just another name, really. Uh, uh, and for that reason, Luke calls him what he calls him here, then in verse 5, a certain priest, not an amazing priest, not a wonderful priest, not a distinguished priest, just a certain man and a certain woman. They're just regular old people doing the best they can with a sort of irregular, if you will, sort of a nasty job uh, that he had. Undistinguished couple, but they were certainly distinguished in the eyes of God. Look at verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So it's, they're a godly couple. They really are. But they wouldn't have been suspected to be that. And I don't mean that they were not nice people. I think they probably were. But else why would God say this? But in this culture, because of their condition without a child, they're considered to be cursed. One of the multiple curses in this culture, see, it was a male-dominated, pharisaical culture, they would have, they had, here's one of their prayers, I thank you, God, that I wasn't born a Gentile, right, they're Jewish, or a woman, they would say. Because who would want to be a woman, for crying out loud? I love being a man. <laughs> no, that's the kind of arrogance that they had. Uh, that's the kind of position. And they would be grateful for all their children. And so a man, a, a priest like this man, and his wife who have no children, they would have been sidelined. Cursed of God. That's their, the word on the street. Because why? Because they're 65, 70 years old and they haven't had a child. Well, again, God's opinion of them is different than the world's opinion. And that's the eyes you need to be playing for, to be sure. So these undistinguished people, these two little people, God begins to distinguish here in verses 8 and 9. Take a look at what happens. So he's serving his two-week two service of duty, right? He's in Jerusalem. Came about while he was performing the priestly service before God in an appointed order of his division. It just happens this time of year every year. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And Luke is a, uh, the king of understatement. You'll find him all the way through this book. He, he's just very, very, he's like a John MacArthur, very didactic, very straightforward. Information, give me information. He's an intellectual, and that's kind of the way he handles things. And so he doesn't get in, into the flamboyant anything. I'll tell you for sure, this was one of the best days, if not the best day of his life. Because when you served as a priest, what they would do, I only served two weeks out of the year. There's 750 of us, my division. Only two weeks, that's 14 days, Right. Every day, they would draw a name out of the hat, out of 750, and that man 
got to lay aside his uh, plastic blood-covered apron, I don't know what they wore, but let's just say that, of a butcher, and he got to put on nice linen clothes, which is pretty cool, if nothing else, but most importantly, he got to tend the lamps inside the temple, and in the evening, he got to take the, the, the incense and burn it before God, which represents the prayers of the people. What an honor. He would never, can't mark it carefully, ever get to do this again. He would have only ever gotten one chance in his life. Most would have not gotten in. Think about it. There's 750 of us. They only draw 14 names once a year. What's my chances? And so brother so-and-so got to go last year, but he passed away, and they moved up another guy in his place. That guy's got just as much chance as I do. I'm not, there's no hierarchy here, even though I've been, I'm 65 years old. I've been serving since I'm 30. The, the names come out as God desires them to come out, and so we trust a lot, you see. And lo and behold, it just happened coincidentally to fall to him. He's 60-something years old. He's been serving as a priest for 30-something years and never gotten to go in and maybe facing never, ever getting to go in. Many men never got to see the inside of the temple. They would go in by themselves, and they would only be chosen by lot. So, so he's, he gets picked, and he would have never get this privilege, and it would never, ever happen again for as long as he lives. And was many men that would live and die and never get to see the inside of this place because of the system that they had. So here's the routine. They would come in the, the whole day. They're butchers, right? And they're, they're serving the people, and the people can only bring the sacrifice to take their place, but they can't go into the temple. So at the door of the temple, the priest would meet them, and they would take the animal. They would kill and skin and quarter and gut and do all the things that they had to do to make the animal ready for sacrifice. A portion or all the animal, depending on what the sacrifice was, would be burned on a large fire that was kept on this raised platform, about 15 by 15 uh, square. On top of that platform, they kept a hot fire going, and I mean it had to be hot. I don't know when the last time you tried to burn a dead animal, but you got to have yourself a fire, just for your information. You ever get them lit, though, man, watch out. Anyway, I can't imagine the smell. All day long, you're covered in blood, your nostrils are full of smoke, and that was their job. And, and you're constantly throwing mesquite or whatever it was on, on the fire, constantly. You're chunking it up there all day long, and that's all that they do. And so in the morning, he would have attended the lamps. He would have gone in. In the evening, though, he was going to take now the... the, the the full sacrifice of the people. So these coals that they've been burning have been consuming these sacrifices. So the coals represent the wrath of God against sin, and these sacrifices are the innocent substitutes that are paying for the people's sins. You follow me? So now these coals have been effectively extinguished by the sacrifices. In the same way, Christ sacrifice extinguishes God's wrath towards us. That's why you must run to Christ. You must trust him. Else God's wrath will never be extinguished against your sin. So these coals were extinguished by the sacrifices of these innocent substitutes, and a designated person, in this case Zacharias, would take a bronze bucket and a bronze shovel, and he would shovel, they're still hot, they're not totally out, into the bucket and then he would carry that bucket along with a certain amount of special formulated powdered incense, and he would carry it into the temple to a, little bronze, to a little gold altar. On top of that altar, he would put the coals and then put the incense on top of the coals, and of course the stuff would start smoking and fill the room with the smell and the smoke of this incense. It's symbolic of the prayers of the people. Having been sanctified by the sacrifice outside of the innocent substitute, 
Now the wrath of God had being satisfied, if you will, the, the prayers are able to be accepted by him. Make sense? Follow the progress? Okay. That's his job. He gets picked. So he's stoked. You've been doing something for 30 years and only hoping. There's no pictures of the inside of this place. You've never been in there. No one only have descriptions of the older gentlemen or people who've gotten to go ahead of you. You've never been in there. You're, you've got your cell phone. You're going to take yourself a selfie in there, I would say, probably not. You're going to go in there. You're going to be taking pictures with your eyeballs the whole time because, wow, the fabled place. All right, I did some measurements because it does tell us in the scriptures the size of this place. And believe it or not, it's almost exactly to within a few inches the width of this room, the, the room he entered. There was an outer, outer area called the holy place, and then there was an inner area called the holy of holies, which back in the days of Solomon contained the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't there at the time, not by this time. It's already gone. It's already been lost. But the, the outer room, if you will, the holy place, which is where the incense was burned, where the lamp was, was where, the, where the, the table of showbread was, that's the room he was able to go in. Only the high priest could go into this second room. But he, as a designated priest, chosen by lot, could go in there. They went in there every single day. So, so he comes in to give you an idea. It's almost exactly to within an inch the width of this room, and almost exactly within a couple of feet the depth of this room back to... Everybody turn around and look out those back doors for a second. Back to that back wall. How's it going? It's my deacon garden hall back there. Appreciate it. Almost exactly from the foot of these stairs back to that back wall is the depth of the room. And I mean within inches, and I marked it off. I went and measured it in the width of this room. The only difference between this room and that room, dimension-wise, is the height. The height of this room would have been probably three times the height of the ceiling. The doors he would have come through would have been the same height, by the way. They were tremendous. So it's this cavernous room, okay? It's only lit, though, by seven small lamps over here on this side on the, as you're coming in from that way. Called the, call the menorah, seven oil lamps, single wick oil lamps. I don't know when the last time you burned an oil lamp, but they're not much better than a, than a candle. So I got seven candles lighting this whole place. So what's it going to look like in here? Spooky. That's the word I like. I'm thinking spooky, because where, that light is not reflecting off of, I mean, I got that kind of ceiling, and I got this kind of walls and space, and it's a little bit dark in there, and there's another reason why this place is spooky. People have died in here. More than one, more than ten have just flat out croaked in this room because they came in here for the wrong reasons, or they came in here with the wrong attitude. Or they came here with the wrong humility, or no humility at all towards God, not recognizing their own sin. Or they came in like King Uzziah, thinking that he was big enough as king to come in and offer incense on this altar, having not been chosen by Lot, having not been of the tribe of Levi. He left there stricken with, with leprosy for the rest of his life. So lives have been altered in this place, okay? So on the one hand, he's super excited. Been waiting for this a long time. On the other hand, he's just like, I might die. So... So he's a mixture of all kinds of emotions. But when he comes through those back doors, he's going to be moving pretty fast. I think I would. Eyes are going to be low, even though trying to look as fast as you can. But this isn't a, you know, this isn't a tourist opportunity, okay? You're in there for business. 
He's going to come to the front, which is where this little tiny altar is going to be, places coals there, places incense there. And as the smoke is ascending, it's a picture of the prayers that are going on outside the temple and the prayers of the people all the entire year as they prayed, asking God for forgiveness. So these, this smoke ascends. So, so here he is, very excited. I would suggest to you, high blood pressure. Let's give the man a break. He's in his 60s. This is rough, all right? His heart's pounding. Something happens when he goes in there. As he's offering the incense, something that never happens. Look with me. Verse 10. So he goes in according to the custom. Whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. By the way, that's dead on 6 o'clock in the evening. So it's in the evening. There's no windows in this place. Only lights in this side. It's a spooky place. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. So here he's standing here, here's the altar. The angel just poof appears. You think he was happy about that? I think he was like, oh boy, I've been wanting to talk to one of these. <laughs> no, Luke is, again, the king of understatement, verse 12. Zacharias was troubled. Wow. He dropped his teeth, y'all, right there. Wasn't going to go back and get him. When he saw him, he feared, gripped him. I mean, he is petrified in front of, like I said, I'm in a place where I know people have died before, and you're just thinking, this is it, here we go, this is me. You know, I don't know, I don't know what he was thinking, but I guarantee you he was scared for sure. The angel brings him a word, brings a word to Zachariah and Elizabeth, a word to the world, effectively, that God is now, now going to remember his oath. Not that he's forgotten, but there's a timing for all of it, right? He's now going to fulfill what he prophesied through Malachi, at least in part, that he's going to be bringing a man, a forerunner of the king. And this king was going to be turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. And he's going to be doing it through this man and through his wife. Zechariah was troubled, and the angel brings this message. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. I'm thinking, I don't know about y'all. I, I would appreciate him saying don't be afraid, but I don't think it would have helped. <laughs> My blood pressure is still sky high. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. What petition? They're in their 60s. When was the last time they prayed for a child? It's been years, hasn't it? See, but it's important that you notice that God, you've forgotten your prayers, but God has not forgotten. Amen. It's important. Amen. It's really important. God takes them seriously. He really does, so I hope you do. Your, your, your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. And he will have, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine nor liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Wow, what a statement of, of uh, life before birth, right? And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So here we go. God starts remembering his oath. Remember what I told you the names of these people were Elizabeth, which means uh, God, his oath and, and Zacharias' name means God remembers. So God remembers his oath. Well, they've known our names all this time, but now God's going to use us. And so how blown away are they by all this? And so we have the beginning of the New Testament here, the beginning of the times of the New Testament, in which supernatural breaks forth on the natural. So your 67-year-old couple friends come to you and say, we're going to have a baby. What are you going to say? No. That would take a miracle. That would take a miracle. This is a miracle. 
It may be just their miracle, but whether people believed them or not, uh, boom, she did come up pregnant, and they did have a son, and the son turned out to be everything that the angel prophesied and predicted that he would be. So let's get a grip before we're done this morning on this whole miracle thing. We had a conversation with the youth a little earlier, the kids. Miracle is something that we have to get clear on because the, the New Testament is such, it's such an operative thing. It's, it's such an a, um, a, um, overriding theme of the Gospels, and Luke in particular. Luke lays out for us 20 very specific miracles of God. He describes. Otherwise, in the New Testament, there's a total of 35 complete miracles. And why do I call them a complete miracle? Because there's a difference in what we call a miracle, maybe, and what God calls a miracle. And these didn't involve just a few, or in some cases they did, like in the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth. But they always, even though they started with a few, they had effect over the whole globe, surely. So we got this man and woman, and only they know how this conception took place. And, but lo and behold, the child born is a blessing to everyone, is he not? And that's the way miracles are. So it may start off, it may be just your miracle, but it won't ever be your miracle. It is something that God's doing through you or through your circumstances or whatever, and it's the nature of a true miracle, and I'm, going to, I'm saying that again for a reason. And, and multiple of these miracles were uh, affected just one or two here and there. Sometimes they affected thousands. Jesus fed 5,000 men, it said. That's just a number, the way you counted noses. You assume that there's a woman with every man and at least one child. So 15,000 people experienced one miracle at one, one shot. Wow, that's a miracle. Miracles, here, here we go, by definition, are an acted event that is entirely supernatural. In other words, there's no possible human, logical, empirical explanation for them. There isn't. Or else, it isn't a miracle. If it truly can be explained some other way, you don't have a miracle. Let me just say this. We and I'm not trying to take away any, any of your thunder and anything that God's done in your life, and please don't hear me wrong on this, but we call a lot of things miracles in our lives that aren't miracles. I'm not trying to say God isn't speaking to you and God isn't working in your life. For instance, you drive to Walmart this afternoon and you get a front row parking place. It's a miracle, right? Right? I mean, God has used those special occasions like that to speak to me, to speak to my wife, many of you. I'm not trying to take that away from us at all. I'm not saying God isn't working and God doesn't do those things, but there are there could be other explanations for that. And let me just say this to you. Don't let me try to explain away what God has done in your life. Don't let anyone else. It was for you. It was God speaking. You let it be that. Don't bounce it off of anybody else. I don't care what they say. I don't care what your preacher says. God was speaking to you. He knows how to communicate to you. You're his sheep. You're, he's your shepherd. He doesn't come to other sheep and ask them to tell you what to do or anything like that. So, so please don't, don't, let us, don't let us do that. But let me just say this. Technically, that's not a miracle. We're going to be real specific. Because our world, I won't do this to you, but our world can try to explain that away and can do it pretty well. So there are many reasons why that open front parking place is there. On the other hand, you drive into Walmart parking lot this afternoon and all the cars elevate 30 feet off the ground and a divine shuffler shuffles them like a bunch of dominoes, and they all come back down, and the one parking place is left in the front for you. Now, that's a miracle, man. <laughs> that's one that everybody can say, that must be God. Now, it certainly speaks to you, because you've got the front row place, but everybody is at the very least miffed 
Because there's no empirical, no logical, no scientific explanation for why something like that would happen. That is a miracle. What we find when we get in the New Testament and the appearance of Christ and the working of God as he fulfills his oath is that the miracles explode. Real, legitimate miracles. Not just I got a front row parking place, miracles. Not I found a good coupon, I got a lot of money off, miracles. I'm talking about real miracles. 500 years, listen, since there was a miracle in Israel. 500. Hundred years. Their last recorded miracles in Israel is when Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. In the fiery furnace, in the lion's den. The last recorded miracles in the timeline of Israel's 500 years. Like I said, do angels appear to people? It's been 450 years since they did. So we can almost say, never. Do miracles happen to the Jews? It's been 500 years. We could almost say never. Not fully never, but almost never. I, I never get a front row parking place, okay, but you got one last month. But the 10 times you've gone to Walmart since then, you don't get it. And so we say never. We use lots of words very flippantly. Never, we can come closer to saying never when it's been 500 years. But even then, not never. So what we're going to see when God intervenes in the history of humanity through his person of his son, Jesus Christ, is that there are vis this is visited by scores of miracles. Scores. Not one or two. Not ten or twenty. Thousands of legitimate miracles start coming. There's no reasonable scientific explanation, the major miracles in the scriptures for, for uh, how a man, how a God would become a man in the womb of a virgin. Stop trying to explain it away. It's a miracle. Say you don't believe it. That's okay. I'm sorry for you, but that's okay. Say you don't believe it, but don't say the Bible doesn't say it. Let them be what they are. We try to come up with reasons for this, and the whole issue of a miracle is that there's not a reason. God supersedes and overrides the natural. That's why we call it supernatural. What would you want him to do? You want him to do something that you and I, as long as we get stronger and we get a little bit smarter, we can figure it out? How could we actually give God credit for stuff like that? So what God comes and does is stuff that we cannot explain, we cannot figure out, we cannot work out. No, no one can. They can either say, I believe it or I don't believe it. That is the nature of miracles. So God holds off for half a millennia, 500 years. 500 years, they're not visited by an angel. 500 years, they're not visited by a miracle. 400 years, God has not spoken for 400 years through any of his prophets. And then, all of a sudden, all these things come back, including the prophets, in a volume and a quantity unlike they had never seen before nor since. That is the coming of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of God's Son, Jesus Christ. God begins to move. When does God move? As soon as he does. When does God work? When the timing's right. When's the right timing? You won't have to ask me when the timing is because you'll know it. If you have to ask me, then I know it's not the right time. You can know. When does God, but when is the right time? When he does what he does. Now, our job is to trust him, you see. It's not to figure stuff out. It's not to figure out, well, the shepherd says we should go to that field or we need to have a meeting to decide whether we should go. No. No. We do what the shepherd says. We trust him. 
Well, that doesn't make sense. I wouldn't go to that field because that field doesn't look logical to me. Well, you're not the shepherd. He is. So we're going to do what he says. I want to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes as we cook a minute here on just the reality of God's work. When he's ready to move, he does. When it's time, God remembers his oath, not because he's forgotten, but because it's the right time. God, you are sovereign. You are in control. You do what's right every single time. You don't miss it. You're never late. You're never wrong. You're working in our lives. We have lots of questions, God. God, I pray ahead of all those questions, we would already have an answer that says, I trust you. I trust you, God. You know what you're doing. I I trust you, God. You know how to rescue. You know how to save. You know how to work. You know how to move. You know how to answer prayers that we've given up on maybe a long time ago. You know how to bring the right people in the right circumstances to do the things that, that you want them to do. Lord, I pray that above all these things, we wouldn't be concerned about not near as much as that we're being the right people that we're supposed to be today. That, I, that I'm the right person I'm supposed to be today. I'm rightly related to you, and I've, 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 I've dealt with my sin that you have paid for, Jesus. I've confessed it to you, and I've, I've gotten things straight with you today. Lord, that, that's what you're asking of us, that relationship, that abiding and ongoing and life-changing relationship. We want to give that back to you, God, with, with a heart that trusts Thank you so much for speaking to us through Luke. We're excited to hear all the things you're going to teach us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.